0: Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Matt Clark is an assistant professor of Horticulture and Enology at the University of Minnesota. He heads up the U of M's participation in Vitus Gen 2, a multi-institutional grape breeding collaboration that has a goal to breed new resistant grape varieties that taste delicious and can be grown with far less pesticide use than standard European grapes. Matt is at the cutting edge of the academic efforts that may result in the next truly great American wine from actual American grapes. The relevance of the ideas that Matt addresses in this interview cannot be overstated. The current wine industry around the world is built on a handful of varieties of the same species of grape. These varieties have not changed for hundreds of years, while the viruses, fungi, and insects that prey upon those grapevines have continued to change, evolve, and adapt. Someday, and that day is rapidly approaching, there will be a reckoning. New virus and fungal pressures will eventually overcome our ability to successfully grow these outdated varieties without massive amounts of crutches, chemical or otherwise. The main hurdle to allowing grapes, and therefore wine, to adapt is consumer perception created by pervasively marketed ideas of the supremacy of European varieties. In this conversation, we talk about what Matt and other scientists are doing to create the future of wine, And I hope that it will help open your eyes to the immense potential and many options that are becoming available for grape growers and wine lovers if we just expand our palates and begin to embrace the change that is necessary to advance wine. I hope you find this conversation as inspirational as I did. Enjoy. The sponsor for today's episode is Centralis Wine. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S Wine. You can learn more about Centralis at centraliswine.com and full disclosure, Centralis is my winery. I started Centralis because I noticed a disconnect between the values that many wine drinkers have and the kinds of wine they choose to drink. I wanted to give those of you who love wine an option to buy wine that reflects your values. So Centralis is built on two pillars. The first is that Centralis wine will always be made with at minimum organically grown grapes. And the second is that we will always tell you every ingredient that was added during winemaking. Our first vintage will be released very soon. In fact, it may be available by the time you hear this. And it's pretty limited. So if you want to get some, please go to our website, centraliswine.com, and sign up for our wine list. Or go ahead and buy wine. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S-WINE.COM We're also on Instagram, at centraliswine, and I can't wait to share our wines with you. Matt, thanks so much for doing this. I actually am really excited to talk to you for, for several reasons. But why don't we start by, could you introduce yourself briefly and talk about what you do at the University of Minnesota, what your sure. position is?
1: Yeah, my name is Matt Clark. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Horticultural Science. And my position is sort of unique. Um, my research area is studying grape breeding, grape genetics, and enology, which is wine science. And so I, in addition to research, I do some teaching and extension that is um, translating some of the work that we do in research out to growers and winemakers across the state and the region. So I've been part of this project for just over five years as uh, the faculty member in charge of running the grape breeding program. And our grape breeding program has been in existence since um, about 1908 or so. And then more recently, mm-hmm. in the 1970s, started focusing on wine grapes as we saw the development of an American wine industry. Minnesota wanted to be part of that. And so um, we focused to wine grapes in the last 40 years or so.
0: Great. So you are one of the people at the heart of grape breeding in the United States, basically. There's University of Minnesota where you are. There's Cornell, UC Davis. Those are the big three, and you're you're at the heart of that, right?
1: The, one of the, <laughs> those people, yes. Um, you know, the <laughs> other place that's doing some, uh, not some, has been really important in grape breeding. Has been at um, the USDA, uh, in particular, the researchers at um, in California at Parlier, and they focus a lot on table grapes, and have had really a big impact on that industry. Um, for a long time.
0: Oh, great. And, you know, I was going to save this question for a little later on, but since you brought up the UC, USDA, at at this point in history, what's it like working with them? I mean, from your perspective, are they helping to move things in the right direction?
1: Yeah, the, the folks at the USDA uh, that I work with are primarily at Geneva, New York, and also then in, at Parlier in California. And they're fantastic collaborators. They have access to wonderful resources like the germplasm collections um, in California and in New York that encompass a lot of the plant materials that are the the grape plant materials that are native to the United States. And so they have access to that material plus they have a, a long history of doing research on grape um, they're great collaborators uh, in many different aspects of the work that we do, including disease resistance, um, using images to analyze, um, to extract data from uh, digital images and things like cluster shape of grapes. We share pollen with one another. Um, they're fantastic collaborators and great scientists to work with.
0: Oh, fantastic. That is really encouraging to hear. I love that. Um, do you- do you ever think of yourself as as like a monk, one of the like Benedictine or Cistercian monks of Burgundy minus the celibacy? <laughs>
1: um, that's a great question. Actually, my undergraduate career was at a Benedictine university. So. Oh wow! <laughs> so I know I quite mean... a few of those monks um, and <laughs> and sisters. Um, you know, it's it's fun to be part of a tradition. And I think that's one of the aspects of this job is that what we do today, we may not see the impact for, um, a whole other generation. It takes about 20 years to develop a new variety. And so to be part of the process is really exciting and exhilarating, especially when you find something new or rediscover something old, um, knowing that I'm just sort of one link in the chain of people who have been working on this project. And and for me, my team changes pretty regularly with changing in graduate students, undergraduate support, interns, and so forth. So we're constantly evolving with new thoughts and ideas and people. And and, and that's the way it's always been, um, at least in the academic side of doing this type of work.
0: Yeah, I love that. Actually, that was a question I was going to get to. I, I noticed as I was uh, thinking of the things that I wanted to ask you about that I I started phrasing my questions as we, like the you know the grape varieties that we're developing. And I was like, I'm not. I have nothing to do with this. That's all him. <laughs> but I guess there's some you know I, you know maybe it's just me, but I feel like when you're at a university doing the kind of work that you're doing, there is a sense that you are doing it for the public benefit as part of a bigger thing that, you know, that, that is a, how do I put it? It's a, I don't know. It just leads people to think of it as shared by the public and it's our accomplishments rather than just yours. And it sounds like you approach that from a very nice psychological perspective which is you're part of something bigger and you're literally building the future for generations to come do you i mean does it ever come back to feeling underappreciated or unrecognized (laughs) for your personal contributions
1: um it it hasn't yet um okay there's there's a lot of tedious things that have to be done there's a lot of grant writing and paperwork and all these other things that are kind of less fun um But those things are also exhilarating. You know, when you get the grant that you applied for, that means that you can hire a new graduate student or um, move a project forward in a new direction. That's really exciting. Although the the workload of preparing to do that and the anticipation is exhausting, um, the rewards are great. And so that's one thing that I find really exciting about my position um, working at a university is I get to do all these different things and to take a new idea, find funding for it, and then run with it. Um, it's certainly different than I think my colleagues who work in industries who are developing new products through, through breeding, whether that's corn or grapes or, um, an ornamental plant, um, we have a different bottom line that we have to meet, uh, compared to what they're doing. And so that maybe allows me a little bit more flexibility than some of those other individuals.
0: Got it. Um, you know, this is, uh... I'm gonna just jump into a juicy topic. You you just mentioned corn and breeding corn. To what extent you, are you making GMOs with your grape with the grapes that you're breeding? I mean, it technically is a GMO, isn't it, or is it not?
1: Yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a great debate, uh, a, a <laughs> bit of a semantic one. So I think when we go down this road, it's important to define what GMO. Means or means to us. Um, You know, plant breeders and humans for thousands of years have been selecting plants and and making changes to them over a very slow pace of time. Uh, Grape breeding in the the modern era means, you know, choosing the parents and then choosing the seedlings that we like and, and moving those forward. So it's still a pretty slow process. And when people in general think about GMOs, I think what they're talking about is making edits. Um, through gene editing techniques or through um, agrobacterium-mediated gene transformation um, to introduce genes or change genes. And that's not what we do in our program. Um, Part of the reason is that there's very low consumer acceptance, it seems, for those products. There's a lot of regulatory um, barriers to doing that type of work and it's not clear if if consumers don't want those products or if growers don't want those products it's hard to to focus on that area as a researcher Um, so so our new varieties that are being produced at least at the moment at my institution and at the others um, use traditional breeding techniques so we're not doing gene editing or gmos um, and that I should just comment that many of us do that type of work, um, but it's not necessarily part of our pipeline for a new variety. It's for testing gene function. It's for advancing the science um, with anticipata- anticipation, excuse me, that, that maybe someday those are products that people will want to grow or to, to consume.
0: Right. Do you, and that would be using CRISPR technology, I take it, when you're doing the gene editing
1: Right. Yeah. So I've, I had a collaboration over the past year and a half, two years, where I worked with uh, a colleague at the University of Minnesota who does a lot of work in that area um, to develop the techniques that could work in grapevine. And so we were pretty successful in showing that um, we could do that process faster and more efficiently than previous methods, um, although we don't really have any gene targets in mind at the moment to advance on that project. Uh, But like i said we're developing the tools and the techniques so if we do identify something that would improve um, how growers produce those plants or improve qualities for consumers we'll be ready to go
0: do do gmos bother you does does that kind of editing bother you personally do do you think there's a a moral imperative that we shouldn't do it or any other imperative that we should not do it or or are you fine with it knowing the science side and I don't know how do you feel about it
1: yeah i'm pretty fine with that uh, i'm not <laughs> sure what, what your audience thinks about it um, just in terms of how biology works it, it doesn't frighten me my thought process on this has really changed over about 20 years and i think that's logical and natural. We've learned more about the impacts. So I think, you know, over the over 20 years, since we've learned more about genomes, we've learned about gene editing and techniques, we've learned about the impacts on human health and, and the environment. Um, all signs to me say that this these techniques work, um, that they can be done very safely. And with CRISPR Cas9 constructs, they can be even more targeted. Um, so that we can have specific outcomes. So I think that um, as a science, I think it's worth continuing exploring as a as one option for improving our food supply and food security. I think it's worth continuing to explore and to help people understand even better how those techniques work and can possibly improve quality of life uh, on this planet.
0: Yeah, I I, th- I have a sense that. The aversion to GMOs uh, probably arises from the fact that they developed hand in hand with things like uh, Roundup and glyphosate, where they were modified specifically to to be able to be grown in the presence of these pesticides and herbicides that would kill other plants. And I mean, that's you know, I mean, if I have a any feelings about it it's it's more about that the fact that it it, it it arose a lot of the corn and wheat gmos that we have arose because we wanted to just broadcast pesticides and, and herbicides
1: i think that's I, I think that's really true and i would just add on that we've had a huge change in the agricultural landscape over the last 40 plus years which includes big agribusiness coming in we've we've certainly seen the decrease in the number of small family farms and conglomeration of large industrial scale farms and all those things sort of went hand in hand and as part of that were the development of things like roundup ready soybeans um and and i think that was it got mismangled uh, and excuse me mismanaged and the the message mangled kind of about what was going on and so i think it's this huge swirling vortex of fear and who controls the food system who grows the food how do we protect the environment Um, and a lot of people are disconnected from where their food comes from and what farmers actually do
0: yeah that's the that, the whole purpose of this podcast. Actually, is to to help reconnect people. Um, that's that is our that's my mission. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and I, I wanted to talk to you for several reasons. As I mentioned, you know, this is a really exciting thing because I'm 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 kind of a geek when it comes to these things, and I'm I'm just face fascinated by grape breeding and the potential that we still have. Maybe and maybe this is the wrong goal and I'll ask you about this, but to to find a truly great American wine from a truly great American grape rather than imported varieties. Also, I think I want consumers to know that there's much more to wine than just Cabernet and Chardonnay. Which I think you are on the cutting edge of, of some of those options, and and also because I, I want wine growers to know that there are options besides spraying a lot of pesticides uh, on a vineyard, and those options come from breeding stronger vines. Um, so, could you let's jump back and can you talk about what the goals of grape breeding uh, in your program are? And and your program is called the Vitus Gen. Program you're at University of Minnesota, but you're a, a, it's a multi-institutional collaboration. Yeah, right? I,
1: yeah, I can talk about a couple of different things. Um, where to start? So the we call it Vitus Gen. Vitis uh, gen. In, in it. Latin, it's probably more appropriately to call it Vitis gen, but we call it Vitis gen. <laughs> um, <laughs> Go for it. And in that prog- program, is sponsored by USDA NIFA um, Specialty Crop Research Initiative, which is a just a a, a bunch of kind of mumble jumbo grant language. And we're in our second iteration of that project. And like you said, it's a it's a multi institutional research project that has a number of different research foci including improving uh, tools and techniques for genetics and genomics in grapevine um, to advance breeding lines that have disease resistance um, to educate people about the type of work that we're doing through extension and outreach And so that project includes folks from all over the country. And then we also have um, an advisory committee that includes folks from industry, um, from academic sectors, both within the United States and around the world. And I don't want to go into too many details about that. But one of the key objectives that we're working on is developing new varieties with powdery mildew resistance, um, as that's the number one fungal type pests uh, in the world where grapes are grown. And um, with some I can, objectives. I can, I can personally you
0: know, attest to that. My <laughs> front <yard> vineyard, yep.
1: <laughs> yeah, so it's it's problematic everywhere grapes are grown. Um, and so our, our project is really looking to understand the genes involved, um, to use DNA testing to help plant breeders like myself identify the parents that have resistance and then their offspring very early on, say in the greenhouse stage, when those plants are just a couple of inches tall, the ones that we know are going to perform um, in the field better. So one thing that your listeners might not know is that grapevine is native to the United States. There are um, 30 different species of grapes in North America, more or less, depends on how they... They get uh, organized by the taxonomist. And then about 30 more in Asia. So the so, grape and that.
0: You're, you're talking species, not varieties, not like Sp- Cabernet versus right. Chardonnay, which is all part of the same species. You're talking about separate whole
1: things. It, you're exactly right. So the grapes that most people are familiar with all belong to the same, same species um, that were uh, evolved in maybe the Caucasus region moved with humans into Europe and then really found its stronghold there in Europe where it developed wine and table grape industries. And those are all the same species technically. So the work that we're doing is looking to these species in North America, uh, as well as Asia, to find those that evolved with these fungal pests and insect pests on this continent, um, where we know that we have more diversity and where those, because those plants evolved alongside those pests, we're anticipating and finding resistance to um, those pests. So my project in particular has been looking at resistance to phylloxera, which is an insect pest, and Mm -hmm. we've identified some um, candidate resistance genes uh, to the foliar form of that pest. Um, Your audience might. Yeah, yeah, because we
0: know phylloxera as a root Louse uh, or tra- transmitted by a root louse, which so and that's why you know American rootstock or North American rootstock was uh, used to as the rootstock for the the European species of grape to to resist that. But you're talking about a foliar, so right. So that...
1: precisely, we're using that same sort of model in our breeding programs, um, not just for phylloxera, but these other pests: downy mildew, powdery mildew. Um, because these North American vines have those resistance traits in them, we just need to find those that have evolved to have those best resistances and then try to combine them into a new variety. So we're doing that through this VitusGen project. And then I would say that most um, of our grape breeding programs uh, across this country are doing that anyway, um, but VitusGen has given us the tools to pool our resources and um, really make strong gains in that area. So not just um, the goal is not to just have a single resistance gene for powdery mildew, because we know that doesn't last over time. And that's not going to work for growers. It's it's specifically not going to work for any organic grower. We want to have multiple resistances into a single variety, so that as the pest populations evolve and change over time, and they will, and they do that very quickly, that if they overcome one of the resistances, there'll be um, kind of this... um, it's the best word, Uh, several other resistance mechanisms in that plant that can respond and and, um, help to reduce that from happening. So we call that durable resistance, so something that's going to last for a long time. We see do you,
0: you, uh, behind closed doors, call it CYA resistance?
1: (laughs) CYA?
0: Cover your ass. Oh, no. (laughs) Okay.
1: No, um, and, and the reality is when even I've been working in this kind of area for a while. We see that um, uh, plants like wheat, where they're working really, really hard to breed for resistance to things like stem rust, uh, crown rust, that their resistances might only last three years. So they're fortunate, they're developing new varieties all the time, and they can because they get a crop every year. Grapevine, we have to take an even stronger approach, knowing that these varieties, we're hoping, last more than 15 years, um, more than 20 years, and the varieties coming out of Europe, you know, have been grown for centuries. Um, And we didn't know that they were susceptible to some of those pests until they came from North America into Europe. So... We have a pool of resources, we call it germplasm genetic resources here in the United States, that we're really turning to for these resistance mechanisms. Um, the program at UC Davis has been working on um, been, and been successful in breeding rootstocks with resistance to things like phylloxera and nematodes, and more recently, have released a few varieties with resistance to Pierce's disease, following the same sort of strategy.
0: Very cool, and I love this idea that I I really it really sort of solidified for me in just researching what you guys do and looking into the resources that are online about Vitus uh, Vitus Gen Two and the videos, which are excellent. I would turn anybody to onto that. Um, Just some really great stuff about what you're doing. It's this idea that you know, a few hundred years ago, we basically stopped breeding the cultivars that. Are now spread around the planet, and they haven't changed. They've just been clonally reproduced around the entire planet, and the evolution and adaptation of those, for the most part, is has has stopped, has ceased, and yet the rest of the world, including the fungal pests and viral pests and and insect uh, in- insect pests, have all continued to adapt and evolve and get stronger, and at some point there's going to be a reckoning, right? Like, you know, as has happened with other crops where Cabernet just will not be able to be cultivated anywhere because everything will have caught up to it and without massive crutches of chemicals or otherwise, I imagine. Is that, am I painting a picture that's kind of accurate?
1: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, And I would say that most other crops were doing this type of work and and moving forward um and grapes seem to be the one that like really like to hang on to these old varieties a lot of it i think comes down to marketing um and and that's been going on for a hundred years yeah even even in europe where hybrid varieties were grown that had resistances um 100 years ago those um those countries and the uh, appellations and organizations within them, you know, they didn't like these hybrid varieties for a number of reasons. Primarily because it it limited, in my opinion, limited their marketing abilities and capacity. And right. so they, you know, started calling these vines faux, fake, having problems, um, American mm-hmm. hybrids, and and that's really tainted the perception of new varieties as they've come out in this country, um, even though they're different. They, you know they may taste different they look different but so do the thousands of European varieties that are out there they're also different <laughs> and taste different and look different um, right. but for some reason we've got this baggage of kind of a, a smear campaign that started over a hundred years ago on the varieties even the new varieties that we're putting out today that um, in my opinion could can outcompete some of the European varieties
0: yeah i've heard that that marketing of french vinifera for example referred to as racist uh, if if you look at it in context of almost any other kind of marketing and you know i just going back to what i was talking about earlier this sort of dream of finding a like a great american grape to make a great american wine i guess you know i just want to say it's not because i'm patriotic i have patriotic feelings for the U S or against Europe or anything like that. But it makes sense to me that, you know, we, we want to let grapevines change and adapt and find something that works for the local climate and the local pests. And, and maybe even, I don't know the idea of let's not make it about a variety. Let's make it about a style or a region so that within those frameworks, you can continue to adapt and breed new things as The world changes as climate changes as pests change does that is that in embedded in what you're doing as well
1: i i certainly feel a lot of those same things okay and it's it's hard when you're up against these huge um multinational companies that produce wines and try to sell them and um, their ideas about how consumers um purchase especially because they like to buy wines by name you know they they like yeah. merlot and yeah. all Merlots are going to be fine um or they go through through phases <laughs> of their life where it's chardonnay and and spring and pinot gris in summer and merlot and fall i don't know that's just, you know right. they, i Rose think and, that, that's yeah. just the way that people really like to approach or that, I don't know if they like to, that's how they approach a lot of their wine consumption. Um, and partly it's because, at least I think it's because there's so many options out there that it's by default easiest to go with something that you know.
0: And are you um, seeing, I mean, I know you're not in the the marketing and sales side of things, but have you noticed personally just a change in customer per- perception? I feel like the East Coast is a little bit better about this than the West Coast, you, just because of the availability of, of hybrid grapes. Have you noticed a change in customer perception at all, or is it, you know? The,
1: yeah, I don't really know. I guess one thing that I can comment on in Minnesota alone is that we have nearly 80 farm wineries in um, Early 2000s, I think it was like less than 15. And so we continue to see a growth in our industry and Mm. the number of grapes that are being grown and the wineries that are producing wines with these hybrid grapes. Um, And most of their sales are at the winery. They aren't being introduced into restaurants. It's a hard scene to get into. Um, You know, if you go to any restaurant in the Twin Cities, you're gonna find more or less the same 15 bottles of wine um, from the same supply chain. Yep. Um, so it's really hard to get their wines in there and be successful and liquor stores do carry some products there's wine clubs and so forth but i guess my point is we continue to see growth and people are visiting the wineries and buying their products um, so to me that says people are certainly willing to try them and go back and experience the um, experience and support the world economies in minnesota who are producing these products so to me that's exciting um, we have a new variety that came out um, in 2017 and we're just starting to see those first wines this year and so for for me that's like a new and exciting area where we have a new variety a new opportunity to market a new product um, across the region and get people excited about something that's new and different um and it's a wine you know i think people hopefully people are willing to take that risk and try something and interestingly that wine's probably most like a vinifera than anything that we've released in the past Um, (laughs) so it you know our breeding targets are despite the fact that we have access to different colors and flavors in the north american species that we use our breeding target is to make something that's most like a vinifera. <laughs> so right. yeah. so it's, it's a bit ironic in that way.
0: <laughs> but I guess it's the path of least resistance at this point in history. Um, yeah.
1: And our, our earlier products, you know, there, we had a, a breeder in our region named Elmer Swenson, developed nearly 30 varieties. Um, and they're very based in Vitus labrusca and Vitus riparia, and they have unique flavors and profiles. And maybe they don't always translate well into the wine. Um, but they're different, and so people have tried these different wines for, you know, forty plus years, and um, some people go back and try the new ones, and some people say, "No, I just want to stick with with what I know and what I like." Um, perhaps I it's that Merlot. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, no,
0: nothing against Merlot, but yeah, unfortunately, that being tied to old varieties. Um, Marquette came out of Minnesota, right? And Marquette's did. pretty big, right? It's It's been very successful. Uh, you know, I know even organic growers on the East Coast are having success with it. And it does well even, like in Vermont, you can grow it.
1: With- yeah, <laughs> right. So Marquette is one of those. Um, it's even being grown in uh, Ontario, um, uh-huh. which is kind of exciting. And that came out, I never get the date quite right, 2004, 2005. And... It's a a grandchild of Pinot Noir. It has some of those characteristics. It's cold hardy, maybe not quite as cold hardy as we once thought, but we've also had some pretty horrible winter um, across our region with polar vortices. Over the last, what, seven years or so, we've had maybe three. And so (laughs) that's not something we thought we were going to have to deal with or we hadn't experienced (laughs) in decades. Um, But yeah, Marquette is one of those, in my opinion, it's one of the best um, red wine hybrid grapes that's out there. And people are making some fantastic examples of those wines. And as you've mentioned, people are doing um, some organic production of that further east. Uh, And I think we have some examples of um, maybe not certified organic, but with organic principles even here in Minnesota.
0: Yeah. And uh, how does that compare to the one that was developed in 2017 and does that one have a name
1: yeah so that's called itasca Um, i-t-a-s-c-a excuse me and itasca is a white wine okay and what we really liked about that variety is that it's disease resistant we still haven't identified um, which resistance genes we have some ideas uh, for powdery mildew it seems to be very resistant if not uh, very tolerant if not resistant to phylloxera on the leaves which is important if if that's something Mm -hmm. you need to control for Um, it has a very low incidence of downy mildew Um, we are seeing a bit of black rot uh, on that variety Um, but if you're controlling for in your vineyard for some of these other pests black rot sort of gets taken care of um, in traditional practices as a kind of collateral It, it just we, we take care of it if you're treating for pottery mildew, for example. Right. So we liked it for disease resistance. It was very cold hardy, even more cold hardy than its parent, which is Frontenac gris. And then the third thing that's really critical is that our breeding program has really worked towards reducing the amount of acidity in the grapes. Something like Frontenac has about, on average, 16 grams per liter or 1.6% total titratable acidity, which is very high. Yep. <laughs> um, the, its parent, the, the native Riparia grape um, in general across our region can be even twice that, up to wow. uh, 3%. So yeah. our breeding program is working to reduce that. And Itasca comes in somewhere uh, in, the, in the juice, I want to say between like 9 and 11 grams per liter, 0. 0.9 yeah. to, to 1%. And yeah. then the wine, of course, it's even less. So that has moved the bar um, for acidity in our breeding program. Um, La Crescent, another variety of ours, is pretty high. Marquette is still pretty high. And so what happens is winemakers have to do something to reduce that acidity. So they can ameliorate with adding water. They can use specific yeast to help drive down that acidity. Um, They can add sugar and the final product or make a sweeter wine to counteract Mm -hmm. the acidity and so those those are all great tools for the winemaker but for consumers who really want a dry style wine it can be a limitation so itasca has moved us one one step closer in the direction of dry style wines and we're really interested to see what winemakers actually do um and so we're just starting i've just tasted my first commercial itasca just this past weekend and so we're excited to see there's i want to say between 12 and 15 in minnesota who have a product that that it's that they're offering right now from last year's harvest
0: are you uh, Did how did you like it
1: i did like it um I'm interested to talk to the winemaker to find out what they did um, and how much they had to work with (laughs) because, you know, (laughs) at our research facility, we, we don't have a ton. Um, we probably have less than, less than 40 vines. Um, and so the research, the research wines that we make are less than five gallons on average, and we're doing different techniques with them to, to figure out what we should be doing. And so it's a little bit different scenario when you're thinking about, um, thousands of pounds of grapes and, and what the winemakers doing. But I'm, I'm very excited to see where they go and what consumers think.
0: And so there's actual winemaking and wine drinking happening there at the
1: lab. We don't say drinking. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, don't get in trouble by the feds. Um, we have a research sampling, yeah, uh, sensory analysis and tasting is usually the words that we use.
0: There we go. Uh,
1: um, so we make a lot of wine that we end up discarding, um, and that's fine because as a breeding program, not everything is good, and so yeah. <laughs> you don't want to, you wouldn't want to drink those if you even could. Um, but we do have a research winery, um, and. Um, and a license to do that. We don't pay taxes on that wine that we produce. That's why we don't get to drink it, because um, right. the feds like to take their chunk of that, and I don't blame them. <laughs> and so I have an a enologist on staff, Drew Horton, who makes wines um, for the research program. We don't make anything if it's going to be less than half a liter. Um, uh we've tried smaller volumes and they did that for you know a good 15 years or so and we've decided to just to make larger volumes if we can and if we can't we're going to wait a year or two for maybe we only have a single vine that we want to make wine from and we'll harvest the grapes and you know once we weigh them we decide you know what let's just taste the juice and get some data from that but otherwise um for varieties that were thinking about releasing or new varieties and and even old varieties we continue to do testing with um, different parameters for example looking at different harvest dates um, we often tell growers wait as long as you can because the flavors improve but that might not be true for a new variety you know there might be some sort of critical limit where it it hits us some certain parameters and that's the best time to harvest it and the reason that we've often told people to wait longer is because the acids continue to fall, uh, the flavors continue to develop, and sugar right. accumulates. And those all generally sound like a good idea in a wine, but that might not be true for everything.
0: Right. True. Yeah, we're, we're seeing that trend in California now for where we used to let things go very, very ripe, and now we're scaling back to on the on the flip side of that, <laughs> very right. and low there- alcohol.
1: Right, right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. the limitation could be how much alcohol ends up in your bottle, and do you want to pay the taxes on that Yeah, Uh, with that increase, and and how do flavors change? So we work on that. We look at different yeast, um, different processing things. We're not a a big enology lab, say, like you'd find at Davis or Cornell, but our enology lab helps to support our breeding program and answer a few questions along the way that we can tell growers, maybe this is, our excuse me, wine producers, that maybe this is one way that you want to look at producing your wine. So they don't have to do um, this research testing on their own.
0: Well, the trial and error and the cost of that. Um, and, and as I understand it, now that you have something like Atasca with the, the DNA sequencing technology that you use, you don't have to crossbreed that in the traditional sense, wait, you know, Develop new seeds, hybrid seeds, let them grow to the point where they can harvest grapes in two to three years and spend all that time waiting for it and then make the wine, taste the wine and be like, oh, no, this one didn't work. You can actually say there are these markers in the DNA and we see that in this new seedling that we're growing. So we'll let it grow and or we don't see that and we see these negative markers so we can rip that out. Is that you're, true? yeah,
1: you're exactly right. Um okay. and it Vitus- so
0: sped up the process in, immensely, right? Less yeah, than and, a year now for for that cycle, I imagine.
1: Yeah, so our VitusGen program has really worked to enable that in Grapevine. And I'm fortunate to have some really smart colleagues who know how to do that and advance that. <laughs> um and, and part of it is you know finding the right um, investigators, postdocs, people who can really focus on that aspect and develop tools and techniques that work for many of us, as opposed to each of us doing um, one-off sort of projects to advance that technology. So I'm very, we're very excited. We have a new marker system that we put into place um, over the last two years, and that's been a big um a big help because we can actually get genome-wide information and included in that are the areas that we have the most information about so powdery mildew resistance for one seedlessness is another the sex of the flower you might not know or your listeners might not know that in the wild grapevine is either male or female and that the perfect hermaphroditic state is a came out of um, domestication and probably Mm. two times. And so when we develop grapes, if you were to walk my vineyard, you'd find a lot of female plants, um, which is not great if you want to grow those commercially. You need to get pollen from somewhere. Mm. So we have markers for some of those traits. And then myself and other colleagues are working on things like insect resistance, cold hardiness, uh, that list could go on and on. Any trait of interest that we're trying to figure out, but what a cluster shape looks like, the berry color. And so we're working to use, like you said, uh, DNA tests or genetic markers to help inform what we're doing. Ideally, we would select those plants when they're in the greenhouse, um, before we move them to a nursery or to the vineyard, because that's a labor step. They take up space, it takes money. Um, And we've been able to do that for the last few years. Unfortunately, because of uh, COVID-19, a lot of our labs got shut down right when we would be doing those processes. So this year, a lot of us have planted out into a nursery um, and then selected the leaf tissue. And so instead of those plants being just a couple of inches tall, my vineyard nursery that I looked at yesterday is about a meter for those plants. They grow pretty quickly. Um, and so now we'll have to, to make our decisions. Hopefully we get that de- the data back that we need before the end of the growing season. And if not, we'll have to make those deci- decisions later this winter about which plants get kept. So t- even though we we've invested a lot of time and energy and money into developing the techniques, you know, a, a global pandemic has changed um, <laughs> how we do our work. Um, uh, but that's sure. OK. It, it helps us understand kind of all the contingencies that um, we have to consider.
0: Yeah. Matt, I could talk to you for hours, I think. And I would, I, I could work with you for hours too. I love what you're doing. I want to, I know we want to keep this short. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to do this and, and have this conversation. It's been super informative. I, I love learning more about this stuff and I love knowing what you're doing, that these options are happening. And hopefully this will spread the word and help consumers know that as well. Um, Is there any, could you give us the website or anything like that that you want to put out there for people to follow up with more resources and find out more?
1: Yeah, actually, you've mentioned the vitisgen2.org website, and I can just spell that real quick. It's V-I-T-I-S-G-E-N, the number two, dot O-R-G. And that's a great place to hear about some of the things that I talked about, um, you can learn about the different grad students and researchers on the project. There's also, um, I'm not finding it immediately, but there's also some links to what we call research in plain English and my colleague, Tim Martinson from Cornell Agritech, he, he likes to to have us, when we publish a paper, write um, a very short description of what that paper actually means in plain English so that our stakeholders and community members can know what we actually did and why it's important to them. And so those are housed also on this website. So it's kind of a great place to go learn about. Sorry, my I'm at home. <laughs> That's my dryer telling me it's time to go change it. I uh, forgot about that. So anyway, <laughs> <we> can, up. <laughs> you can put that out uh, if you want. Um, but if you go to vitusgen2.org, you can um, find sort of translations about the research that we've been doing, videos, as you've mentioned, um, articles in popular press. So we put out articles into some of the industry magazines. It's a great place to learn about what we're doing. So those are a couple um we had a story i want to say two years ago in smithsonian magazine and if you just google uh developing the, the great north american grape something similar to that you'll you'll find an, an article that outlines some of the work that we're doing great. Um,
0: yeah i love that article that was I, I think there's a lot of great ideas brought up in that yeah, everyone. I think
1: it, it's really accessible um, to yeah. uh, a broad audience. And I think that's great. So, yeah. you know, that I think that gives you kind of an overview of some of the Vitisgen things that we're doing. Each of the labs that participates is doing their own work. Um, and then there's researchers, of course, that aren't involved in that project who really help what we do. I just as a kind of a closing comment, you know, University of Minnesota, we're not a, a big grape growing state. We're not a huge industry. Um, we're about an just over 80 million dollars a year of economic impact but when i look around um, my college and my university about how many people support the grape industry across the year i added up over 35 different people um, at our university alone are helping the grape and wine industry in our state and that really speaks to people's interest, um, to the impact that rural economies have in the state of minnesota and thinking about that every state in our union has a winery I think is really cool and so um, it's something that I think we should continue to keep working on advancing the science advance our understanding about wines and why people like them um, and continue to really um, develop people's lives and enrich them and wine is just one way to do that
0: yeah I I mean you're not just enriching the the local Minnesota community but I know the impact of your work is national. So thank you again. Uh, If you ever feel unrecognized, uh, (laughs) I I recognize you and appreciate you. Well, I appreciate Uh,
1: that. I just stand on the shoulders of everyone who comes before me and the the grad students and the technicians who do this work every day. I sometimes just feel like the paper pusher. But uh, I appreciate your recognition. And I'd love to come (laughs) talk more about some of the things that we're doing in the future.
0: That would be great. Yeah, thank you so much for for your time now and we'll we'll definitely schedule that again. I, I would love to come back. I'm sure more questions will come up and I think we're at the the beginning of of people tapping into the possibilities and potentials uh, that that spring from what you're doing and so I think we'll see more and more interest uh, in the future. I Here's hope so. Yeah. Thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun for me and and I hope uh, really enriching for everybody who listens. (laughs) And I hope to talk to you again soon.
1: Sounds great. Thanks, Adam.